All righty. Blessings. Thanks, Josh. Boom. Quick. You're taking up my time. You're chewing up my time with that foolishness. Anyway, good to see everybody here. How many on Wednesdays you do not have a class on Wednesday? Let me see your hands. <laughs> Every one of you could be in bed right now and not be breaking any rules. Uh, you could just sleep through your day, but you got up and came to chapel on a Wednesday. Very, very impressive. I typically will speak on Fridays, but this week uh, we had to get Reggie Dabbs here, and his only days was Thursday, Friday. So. If you've never heard Reggie Dabbs, I'm just telling you, the next two days are going to be some of your favorite in all your time here at North Central. Reggie is a graduate of this school, speaks all over the world, one of the greatest communicators, musicians, leaders that I've ever met in my whole life. And so he's on campus the next two days. Do not miss chapel uh, tomorrow. I want to make mention real fast, one of the best things we do at the university is something called the Antioch Society. The Antioch now, Antioch is a, it's an initiative across the whole campus. It has to do with all of us, no matter what our educational path is, getting a burden in our heart for unreached people groups around the world. And so Antioch does a lot of wonderful things throughout the year. Um, it just, it's, it's a co-curricular event that is it's all across the campus. It's not housed like in one, like the College of Church Leadership or College of Arts and Sciences. People from every one of the colleges uh, are part of Antioch Society, so it, it reaches everybody here. Uh, they have a prayer meeting they do on Thursday nights. It's at 9 p.m. It's a prayer for the unreached in the CLC 201. Um, and also, you can follow the ncu.antioch on Instagram. I follow it and uh, kind of keeps you up to date campus-wide with Antioch. Um, so I'm just getting the word out there. Their prayer meetings kick in tomorrow. I also want to encourage everybody to do something right off the bat this year. I was a freshman at my college back in 1980, 1900s, back in the day, um, before Apple Computer was even on the stock exchange back in 1980. Um, we were moving from super cool cars in the 70s, like the Vega uh, and the Pacer and the Gremlin. Anybody have an idea what those cars look like? Um, and we were doing super cool new cars like the, the Honda Accord that was coming into vogue back then. Minivans still weren't around, though, so you know, no minivans yet, five years away. But back in 1980, one of the most important moves I ever made was about a week into my freshman year of college. I came from a hometown called Redding, California, up in Northern California, and my best buddy his name was Bobby Johnson. Bobby, I called him Bobby J. We played hoop together all through high school. And I was in chapel, and uh, God was working. Uh, I was still young, uh, didn't get it, still had my baseball hat on in the back of the chapel. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, um, but I wasn't engaged. It was kind of those uh, uh, people had a personality. They're like Christian personalities. So that was worshipers. I didn't have a Christian personality. Um, so I was kind of kicking back back there, but I was watching it, and it was impacting my heart, but I really thought this school would be a great place for my friend, Bob, Bobby Johnson, to go to. So back then, there's no phone, no text, none of that stuff. Had to go to a pay phone, had to spend 25 cents, not 10, because it was a long-distance call, from Santa Cruz to Redding, California. Went to the telephone booth, put in a quarter. He basically got about two minutes to talk, and they'd want more money from you. Um, and I called my friend Bob Johnson. I said, hey, Bobby, Scott, down in Santa Cruz. I'm at Bethany uh, College. He said, man, dude, you got to come here. This is unbelievable. you got to be here. We'll be roommates next year. you got to come here. 
that call, he was like in a junior college, but he was from my hometown and he was my friend. And I thought of him, the Lord dropped him in my heart. And I made that call. And that year, God was working on his heart. The following fall, he left junior college and transferred and came to Beth. He became my roommate that next year. God has used him in great ways across the world. I'm telling you, it was just an impulse to find a friend from my hometown that I thought would love coming to Bethany. I want to challenge every single student here. North Central has always been a word of mouth university for 90 years. It's a word of mouth. Man, I went there. You got to go there. This place is, I didn't know this existed, blah, blah, blah. We're a little more than word of mouth now. We got a pretty sophisticated national recruiting system and the way that we spread the word on social media. You know, people get it. They know us all over the United States. But nothing is as powerful as when a friend calls back home to your hometown and say, listen, I've been thinking about you. You need to apply. You got to come. If there's a high school student that you know well from your youth group that's a senior this year, going into their senior year, a text from you, man, just saying, hey, uh, this school I think is perfect for you. I want to encourage you to drop that seat. It changed the course of that guy's life, and it cost me 25 cents in about five minutes in a telephone booth. That's how powerful that outreach was. So be thinking as you're here um, who I can contact from my hometown to let them know about NCU and uh, to spread the word back in your youth group and uh, family members and people you might know. Other thing I want to encourage you is this. These classes that you're taking and the culture that you're involved in here, uh, you have to interact with people that are older than you, obviously. Now, I'm a boomer. I'm a boomer. And I'm married to a Karen. I'm a boomer and I'm married to a Karen. Hey, boomer, how's Karen? You're talking to the Hagans. You're talking to your president. Hey, boomer, how's Karen? Now, why is boomer and Karen so critical to your life? I'll tell you why boomer and Karen are critical to your life. Because every door that was opened up to me in my life was opened up by an older person. Not one peer opened up a significant door in my life. They gave me speaking engagements and we got to go on cool trips and do hikes and stuff like that and go to concerts. Peers gave me a place to go speak, you know, come speak. But every significant career door in my life was opened up by an older person. So don't burn bridges with older people, okay? The smartest career move you can make is building healthy relationships, respectful relationships with people that are older than you because those are the people that are going to turn the knob and open up the door. They're going to be the ones that smile like, oh, yeah, they were stupid. Man, I, I, I had a great experience. I may have only spent three minutes with you, but I will have a memorable, good experience with you, and I will smile on you. These leaders will smile on you, and then that little smile moves you from this stack to this stack. 
Because how it really works is there's a stack of resumes and names here and a group of people sitting around a table that you've never met. Your name pops open and they go, ah, uh, kind of, okay, next name. And in four seconds, four seconds, it's over. That quick because you burnt bridges. And you don't think those people are going to show up down the road. They all show up down the road. They have little meetings and they compare notes. I don't know when it happens, but they do every day. They compare notes. It's called your reputation. Smartest thing you could ever do is you got to keep loving the boomers and keep loving the Karens because it's going to be, you're going to be shocked at how they're going to open up doors for you in your life. Can somebody say amen? amen. Here we go. So... I start preaching, I start preaching in September, and I just keep preaching through May. I, I, when I do these chapels, they're not start to finish sermons. They're, I just keep talking to you for nine months, and we kind of get through some stuff, and then we get to some more stuff. So please don't grade me on my homiletical presentation. I'm not a guest that's got to do a nice, clean, little start-finish message. I'll get to some stuff, we'll get to some more stuff, and we'll kind of get through a lot over these next, this next year and this next four years. But I've never been more excited to be the president, never been more excited to serve, and I think our future is unbelievably bright. You are the best September group of students in my five years I've been here. I've never seen the collective uh, strength of a student body like we have right now. All righty. So um, I want to share with you just some cornerstone stuff, uh, things at the very beginning that's kind of weaved throughout my life message a little bit. We're going to get back into the Daniel passage. We're going to go a little deeper into that 10x thing today. But I want to give you a verse of scripture and show you some images and pictures that, that speak to my heart, give you some really 35,000 feet look at leadership, some very uh, fundamental things. If I was building your life from the ground floor, as far as the most basic building blocks of how to think about life as a kingdom Christian leader uh, moving forward, I'm going to start to plant some of that in your head and in your heart. But I want to start with Deuteronomy 33 uh, verses 18 and 19. It says about Zebulun, he said, um, rejoice Zebulun in your going out or going forth. And you, Issachar, in your tents, they will summon peoples to the mountain and there offer the sacrifice of the righteous. They will feast on the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. It just sounds, it's good, but it's Old Testament and it's kind of lost and it's tucked in a bunch of uh, encouragements to the tribes of Israel, the sons. Um, as the father's dying, he begins to speak over the tribes of Israel. He blesses them. And he says to the one uh, tribe named after Zebulun, this is your characteristics. And he says something to another uh, tribe, another son, Issachar, this is your characteristics. But of all the sons, these are the only ones that were combined into two, two into one thing. It's the only time he called them they. So when the promise of the Lord is coming to these sons and these tribes, it's interesting that Zebulun and Issachar are combined into a they. What's powerful? Because if you look at the text, they're going in opposite directions. Zebulun was known for the ships that they would sail on the open sea. It says, blessed are you, Zebulun, and you're going forth. You could put the word risk-taking. You could put the word adventure. You could put the word high seas, ships. Blessed are you, Zebulun, as a visionary, as you take risks. That's the trait that is on you. 
But blessed are you, Issachar, in your tents, or tent pegs, in which some of the translations say. What does a tent have to do with a ship? Why would you combine a ship going forth and a tent that doesn't move? It says, blessed are you, Issachar, in your tents, or your tent pegs, for they. How does a ship and a tent relate to each other? And why does the ship and the tent produce um, a feast of the abundance of the seas and treasures hidden in the sand? The ship sails on the seas and the tent is driven into the earth or the mountain or the sand. The tent is unmovable. The ship is always on the move. How could the tent and the ship give us a clue to what a successful future in the kingdom looks like. It's all right there. Because they're given this unbelievable promise. Abundance, feasting, riches. It's all yours. It's whose? Is it the ship or is it the tent? Who gets it? Zebulun or Issachar? Who gets it? If you study under a well-enlightened rabbi who I heard this teaching from, a Jewish rabbi. He said, they understand the secret to kingdom success. It's the mixture of predictability and risk. When you combine the ship, which represents vision, going forth, the unknown, the high seas, just that life of just like, man, don't hold me back. I'm out on the ocean. I, I love the ship. How many are naturally more like Zebulun? You love adventure in the open seas. Let me see your hands. Like, ah, man, I relate to that. How many of you are more like Issachar? You like predictability, habit, and you trust pattern. It's about 50-50, okay? So what we want in our life is the combination of these two things operating in our life. There has to be an element to your life and mine that is willing to live by faith, step toward things that are unknown, get on the ship, sail the high seas, and to take risks that are as calculated as possible, but not fully mapped. Maybe the only coordinate I have is a promise from the scripture. That's my coordinate, is a promise. I'm headed that way based on a promise, but no landmark that's physical, but a promise from God. There's going to be aspects to our life in which we set out in this adventurous life, but if there's not a tent aspect to your life, you will shipwreck. You have to have character. You have to have something about today that looks just like yesterday. There has to be something about today that looks just like tomorrow. Leadership is about stringing together thousands of days that all look the same. There has to be something about your life that is boring, predictable. Something about you that can be counted on where people, when they see you, don't go, man, which version of you is showing up? Is this crazy you or tired, consistent? What are you? You, you got to take away the guesswork. People can't guess which version of you is coming through the door. And we're all figuring it out. I'm still, I'm almost 59, I'm figuring it out. 
But I figured out some things that I have to be a certain way today, exactly as I was. My tent stakes, my tent pegs. The tent represents a consistent life of predictable character, patterns, habits. The ship or Zebulun represents that life of faith that will take risks. As I look at the landscape of my life, both anecdotally and then really studying leadership, I find the greatest leaders in this planet have fulfilled this very text, whether they know it or not. There's an aspect of Zebulun in them, and there's an aspect of Issachar in them. There's something about you that's predictable, and there's something about you that's wildly adventurous in Jesus. Can somebody say amen? amen. I think, I think those are the elements of great kingdom leadership. Now, sometimes in leadership, your job is to be the calm in the midst of the storm. Like Jesus, we're resting. Everybody else has lost their way, but we're the calm in the midst of the storm. Leadership is a lot about that. Got to be the calm in the midst of the storm. Everybody's losing it. And you are there as a poised parent, a poised leader. Your stability, your calm, it just emanates. It inspires people anchor to it. But I also want you to know that God has not called you to solely be the calm in the midst of the storm. Sometimes your job is to be the storm in the midst of the calm. Okay? We're called to be the storm that disrupts the calm. You're both. Calm in the midst of the storm and you're the storm in the midst of the calm. So God is going to use you in some unique ways as you have that Issachar and Zebulun balance in your life of the ship and the tent. Okay, this is just a couple random, four random thoughts. I just want to get them in your spirit early at the beginning of the year. Number one, if you think for too long about a missed opportunity, chances are you will miss the next one too. So what happens is we drop our head, our heart sinks, we missed an opportunity. Ah! Oh, oh, I missed it. Pout, pout, pout. Head down. Five more things just flew in front of you. You never saw them. Because you're thinking for too long about a missed opportunity. Now, here's the way it should work. Anybody here ever totaled a car? I know you're early drivers, but if you totaled a car, you were not totaled, but the car was totaled. Okay? Here's how it works. You get a phone call from the insurance company. They say, hey, come down to Floyd's Wrecking Yard and we'll let you in. And you walk up to your car, and it's sad because you've already named your car, you love your car, and the car's munched and the, you know, the frame's bent. They got to total the car. Why are you there? You're not there to cry over a total car. You're there to do one thing. You're there so you can reach inside the wreckage, pull out what's valuable. Oh, there's my student body card. Oh, there's, yeah, there's my wallet. There's my photos. You reach inside the wreckage. You pull out what's valuable, but you don't tie the wreck to your leg and drag it around for the rest of your life. You reach inside the wreckage, you pull out the wisdom from the wreckage, and you leave the wreckage behind. Okay? You got to pull out what's valuable from the wreck, but you don't take the wreck with you. That's what separates our life spiritually and our effectiveness in kingdom leadership. I can't think for too long. I need to think about failure. 
I need to think thoughtfully, deeply, counsel with friends, and really glean the wisdom from the wreckage. But you got to leave the wreckage behind. Here's another one. How about if we never punish the next person because of the actions of the previous person? Make each relationship a clean slate. If you had a bad experience with your biology teacher in high school, don't bring that into this classroom because you look like that. I had a guy come to my church when I was a young pastor. He says, man, I, I just moved here from Stockton, California. The pastor there had a blue Dodge Caravan and four little kids, a little girl and three boys. You have a blue Dodge Caravan with a little girl and three boys. I don't think I can go to church here. What? Because I look like and drive like? We live 100 miles apart. I'm not that person. But people lazily allow their emotions to allow the actions of the previous person to impact their relationship with the next person. And I will say this generation is lost at sea with this. Because there's great comfort and solidarity in categorization. I'll just categorize you. You're a boomer, man. You're married to Karen. I love that, by the way. I love that. I'm going to live that. I'm going to wear that. <laughs> Boomers in love with Karen. <laughs> so what happens is we project onto that person that thing um, because you look like. Because there's great... It's, it's very easy to be lazy with solidarity and categorization. Because we think they represent this. So now I know how to behave and I don't have to give this any relational investment, any mental thought. I just want to encourage you. Don't let the actions of the, even on campus, you have a bad experience with somebody, I'm gonna wear it and you're gonna pay for what they just did. Great kingdom leaders, that Zebulun Issachar, that ship tent person who does both things well, man. They are able to have a pattern of character that's predictable. They're putting a thousand days together in a row that all look the same, but they're still crazy adventurous for the kingdom. But I don't have to guess which version of you showing up. Don't, don't treat people based on the previous person. Jesus Never approach anybody with caution or suspicion because he had a bad experience earlier in the day with somebody that looked like that person. The best leaders have that emotional capacity and competency, especially when you get out of this place and you're in the marketplace. You can't wear that into the next meeting. You can't wear it into the next setting. You got to shake it off and say, no, that was, I have a clean slate with you. Just, just one more saying and two pictures. For a leader, the most important person in your life is the one who loves you but is not intimidated by you. I don't want to be an intimidating presence around you. Our world is, categorization has created any correction that happens between us is an act of power. And so there's a natural reaction to anybody that corrects you because the world is telling you that the world is organized between the power and the power, the powerful and the powerless. 
So what happens is if I have a negative encounter with you and you get a D on a test or an F in a course and your mindset is, is that the powerful is doing this to the powerless, you're never going to grow. You're going to be caught in a whirlpool like this till you're 50, 60 years old. And then you will look back and say, what the heck did I just do? Did I just squander my life? Because I was caught in an earthly way of looking at life, at everything. Now, sometimes absolutely the powerful do terrible things to the powerless, but not in every setting, not in every setting. So believe the best, believe that people like you. I believe every day when I wake up that people like me. It's shocking. Most people wake up, a lot of them, they think people don't like them. And the devil's got you. You're on his leash. Yeah, people don't like you. Oh, yeah, you did that. It proves people don't like me. No, friends. I believe you like me. I believe you like older people. I believe you like this place. I I believe that about you. And I want you to believe that about yourself. And I want you to believe that about the world looking at you. People like you. There's going to be exceptions to that rule. Okay? Let them be the exception. Okay? I want to show you a powerful picture. Don't show it yet. Dr. King was assassinated when he was 39. Think about that. Martin Luther King's entire lifespan was only to age 39. Think about all that he accomplished, all that he wrote, all that he spoke when he died at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis in that, on that April day, I believe it was the month of April, and he was 39. What people don't know, it was the second assassination attempt on Dr. King. Ten years earlier, he wrote his first book when he was 29. He wrote a book about the Birmingham bus boycott. Rosa Parks, you know, famous figure in history, is arrested. King went down with several people, rode the bus, and they got arrested. And the whole Birmingham bus boycott really became a pivot point in civil rights. In 1958, King is 29. He writes a book. It's his first book. And he goes to a book signing in New York and Harlem at the leading book store there and he's at the book table and he's a renowned figure nationally at this point writing on silver it's his first major book while he's sitting at the table signing books an assassination attempt happens he did yes a person came up with a knife and drove it straight into his chest here's a picture of him with the knife in his chest there he is there's a large 12 inch letter opener the person put into his chest. Most people have never seen the photo or even heard this story. How many did not know that Dr. King had an attempt on his life when he was 29? Okay. It's what it was. For 45 minutes, they waited for the ambulance to arrive. I'm going to show you a close-up of the wound. Show the next picture right there. This young woman named Isola Curry, is the one who stabbed him. 
Isola was apprehended and she was battling mental illness. They don't know what her motive was, but she battled mental illness and actually did not go to prison, but was institutionalized for mental illness. Dr. King did not want her prosecuted for attempted murder once he found out her mental state and that she had a history of mental illness. But it's one of the great mysteries, but it's a happening. Now, why am I telling you this? So for 45 minutes, that letter opener is inside his chest six inches, well within range of the middle of his heart. The tip of that letter opener was pressed against a major artery and was pressing against it like putting a letter opener, pressing it into a balloon. Dr. King for 45 minutes was motionless. He didn't lunge at her. I got a wrap here. He didn't lunge at her. He didn't react. He didn't recoil. He got hit. And the most important word, I think, in all of kingdom leadership is this word. It's the word poise. So Dr. King, with this in his chest, remains poised. The doctor said, had he reacted, had he lunged, had he gone after her the way she went after him, had he reacted in any way, it would, the tip of it would have hit the artery, pierced it, and then the blood pressure would have exploded the artery outward and he would have died instantly. What am I saying is this. I don't want somebody stabbing me in the heart, okay, for any reason. But this is a powerful picture of poise. I'm praying that for you this year. Let's all stand together. I'm praying this. Now, we didn't even get to Daniel. Like I said, we're just going to preach and we'll get to a point and I'm out of time. Um, but my sermon kind of lasts all year. Uh, we'll just kind of keep picking up where we left off. How many glad you came to chapel today? How many learned something? Learned one. Okay. We're going to pray. We're going to dismiss. And then you're going to do all your homework and all your reading. And you're going to come to chapel the next two days with Reggie Dabbs. And you're going to find everybody on your floor that it's not, say, you are coming to chapel with me. And you're going to text somebody from your hometown and your youth group. And you're going to tell them all about North Central. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you today. We thank you for your goodness. We pray blessing upon our endeavors today, Lord. Lord, we pray that that ship intent bland God of, of character, Lord, predictability, Lord, and adventure, Jesus, would mark all of our lives. Lord, I pray today that we would have that poise, Lord, in that moment under pressure. Lord, that there would be a stability to us, God, that would get us to our next assignment in this life. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. God bless everybody. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Have a great day.